0: The world desperately needs heart-based leaders with extraordinarily high emotional intelligence. It's your season to step up. If you know you're called to be a shaper of culture, a change-maker, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The High Road to Leadership. I'm your host, Beverly Lewis. I'm here to share the journey on the high road by bringing you wisdom, encouragement, and stories that will strengthen your heart and clear your head, making every decision clearer and every intersection you come to easier. Your voice matters, and you're the hero in a history-making story. The high road doesn't have to be lonely, and it won't be, now that you've found your way here. Let the adventure begin. Today, I'm actually talking to you about the master's journey or The Journey to Mastery, however you want to look at it, I've been captivated by the word mastery since I started my first business in my 20s. I wanted to become a master communicator. I wanted to embrace the journey and enjoy the process. What I was clueless about is that this is a trip that doesn't end. It's it's not a destination. It's a process. And that's one of the things I want to talk about today. So what is mastery? What journey are you on? What do you want to become a master in or a master of? The word itself means the possession or display of great skill or technique, skill or knowledge that makes one master of a subject. Synonyms might be proficiency, ability, expertness, education, Oh, you think about a master's degree, there's an emphasis on education for you. There's all kinds of interesting places the word master or mastery is used. There's master journeyman in some of the trades. There's the master's degree I've already mentioned. Some of the arts, martial arts, there's masters, like a black belt is considered a master. When I was in high school, I studied with a master musician, and I'm frankly a I mean, he was amazing, but I'm not really sure that formal way you earn that designation in some fields. However, what an honor to be called a master of something. It also implies that you have influence. It implies that you have authority. When you're an expert, you have authority in that field. It implies that people are in your shadow. It implies that somebody's watching and learning from you, and therefore is a responsibility as well as an honor. And it carries uh, certainly when done with excellence, a degree of humility as well. So what distinguishes a master from someone who is not one? Well, to me, the first identifier is a master stays the course. She learns to uh, embrace the plateau's power through them. It doesn't It's not an ever ascending journey and yet we want it to be. And in fact, at this point, I'll just mention that I feel like the culture of today's society honestly has kind of an anti master, anti mastery mentality to it. There's this quick fix. People would rather have heart surgery than exercise and eat right. Or, you know, so it, the, in pharmacology, it's the fast pain relief, fast. Uh, addressing the symptoms in cooking, we've become a a culture of fast food addicts, and and the list goes on and on. We often spend now and worry about the future when later, and whatever happened to invest wisely and with the big picture in mind? Whatever happened to the vision for the for the future? And that's what I. Why I wanted to talk about this journey to mastery today it fits so perfectly with the theme of this podcast the high road to leadership because the high road is not crowded the master's journey is not one that that has as much competition as you would probably want to think because think about all the people that we compare ourselves to and look at on social media and the internet and all those places. Are they really on the master's journey? Are they pitching for a fast rising star experience? I've seen so much of that. And in business, certainly, you know, there's so many get rich quick schemes out there, there's so many. Uh, courses and coaches, and I am—I have online courses, and I am a business coach. But when I hear people put others down because they're not making six figures within a matter of months, I scratch my head and think, "Whatever happened to the master's journey? Whatever happened to the patience that's required to build something long-lasting?" I—I I feel like. We need to take another look at that. By looking at, let's go ahead and look at three examples of those who are not on the path to mastery. These are three characters. I'm going to call them the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker. And let's take a quick look at all three to make sure that you don't find yourself in any of these categories. So the first one, the dabbler, this is the person who is enamored, With newness, this person is, uh, you know, just excited to get started. They're the eternal kid, there's a whole lot of enthusiasm. But when the going gets tough, they get gone, (laughs) they are not to be found. They don't have the patience for, uh, the difficult days. They don't have the vision for the big picture. They like the rush of excitement. And when the fun wears off, they're looking for the next gig. Okay, that is the dabbler. Then we've got the obsessive. This is the person who starts with a surge of progress and then they love that surge, they like perfection, they like success so much that they continue to pour it all on expecting that next surge. But one of the things that we're going to be talking about the master's journey is that plateau experiences are part of it. And here we have the obsessive who is determined... That by sheer force of their will, they are going to push through that plateau, and they are going to see the results, and they are going to be quick, and they can make it happen because they're can-do people. Well, what happens when they don't get the results, what happens when they don't have things go their way, is a lot of times then they get angry, and they're off to find something that will work, and they A lot of times there's blame and anger and bad feelings left behind with this person. And by the way, the master's journey, we talked about all the places that it can take, you know, it can happen, whether it's in business or in sports or in uh, a, a, a habit or a skill that you want to learn, or in relationships. We all have... a a journey to take in relationships that are enduring and long lasting as well. So you don't want to be a dabbler. You don't want to be an obsessive and you don't want to be a hacker either. Boy, this is a word that I know, you know, because it's become so popular in the last few years. It seems like there's blogs for life hacks and business hacks and, uh, Investment hacks, and you know, just anything you want to learn about, there's hacks, which is a shortcut that's what it basically means. It's the shortcut to finding success. How do you feel about that? Do shortcuts usually pay off for you? I don't know. I, you know, I've gotten lost on some shortcuts before, and really. (laughs) My dad's words ring in my ear that any job worth doing is worth doing well. I heard that a million times growing up, and I'm thankful because the hackers aren't interested in that. They are interested in, let's get in, get it done, get it over with, get out, get it, got it, good. No, that's not the way to build something of significance and value, that has endurance and strength. So let's talk about some of the those are the, the those three things, those characters, the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker represent what we don't want to be when it comes to a journey to mastery. So, what do you want the journey to look like? And I guess some people say, well, how long is it going to take? I'm reminded, I heard recently of somebody who started taking Aikido, that martial art, and asked the master uh, how long it, it could be expected to take before they could earn mastery. And he said, how long do you expect to live? Ah, there's a first hint we find of what the master's journey the journey to mastery really does look like it involves time it involves repetition It involves being willing to do the do even when the mood has left you, even when you're not seeing measurable progress, to get up. And I think in athletics, it's called a standard of performance, to be able to play strong even when you're not feeling your best. You know, the superstars that just... You know, can go out and have high performance when just the conditions are just right. That's not really the journey to mastery. It's the people that have that standard of performance that learn to discipline. Oh, there is a word for you discipline to bring discipline to play into the process to press on even when the mood has left you. And there's another story. I about Pablo Casals, who is often referred to as one of the world's greatest cellists, one of the greatest cellists to have ever lived. He is not alive anymore. He lived to, I believe, the age of 96. And when he was about 94, he was still practicing for hours every day, even though he wasn't performing anymore. And somebody said, why are you practicing? And he just smiled and said, I'm starting to get better. That is the example of the master's journey. How do you develop a mastery mindset? That's a good question. I want to give you a couple points that that you might take to heart as you think about the journey you're on. Again, whether you're mastering a sport? Do you want to be the best golfer you can be? And who do you compare yourself to, by the way, to be called a master? I think we better leave comparison at the door. But here are some of the things that I think, some of the attributes and characteristics and habits that I think are key in developing a mastery mindset. The first one is finding joy in regular practice. Finding joy just in the practice, not just in the performance, not just in those moments in the spotlight, not just in those moments of victory, not just when you're feeling the win, but finding joy in the process. Oh. Okay. The next thing I want to mention is seeking instruction. Oh, by the way, I have to go back. Finding joy in the practice, I have to mention that practice without feedback can be dangerous because if you're practicing and developing bad habits instead of good, if you're practicing and let's say it's golf and you're doing the swing wrong and you don't have feedback on how to get it right, that's dangerous, which leads us to the second thing I wanted to mention is to seek instruction, to recognize that you need a mentor, a teacher, a teacher. And also to recognize that that mentor or teacher doesn't have to take you all the way down the road to the high road of mastery. It might be that you change teachers with different seasons and different skill levels and different places in your life. And that's okay. That also is part of the process. Another thing I want to mention is intentionality intentionally making that decision that you want to develop mastery and that you're willing to pay the price to do it and finding out what the price is. Learning from those who have gone before you, looking at the those who excel, it's, it's such an exciting process. And another thing I want to mention is energy. And the energy has to come both physically and mentally, emotionally, you know, I joke about it that I I do aerobic exercise very regularly and yes, I need to do it for overall fitness, but I do it especially on the busy days when I'm speaking and training and and needing the full brain power, full the full ability to pivot and to think on my feet and to be as sharp as I possibly can. That oxygenation that comes from aerobic exercise is part of that. So there is the energy aspect of taking care of yourself. There's the energy aspect of of, uh, emotional strength, which resilience. We'll talk about that a lot over the episodes in the high road to leadership. And I do want to also mention that the mastery mindset just like I mentioned the energy aspect addresses different parts of your being, the mastery mindset has the cognitive aspect where you need to learn, you need to grow, uh, you need to uh, have that mental understanding of what you're doing and what excellence looks like and how to get there. You also need to have the mental, I, I, that was the mental ability, the uh, emotional ability to bring your, to have that balance between having your emotions under control and yet recognize how, how important they are, that they are signposts Uh, the way I often talk about it is that you want your emotions to be a thermometer. You look at it, you check the temperature, you acknowledge what it's saying to you, but the thermostat is when we become good at regulating our emotions, and that is a very key thing in the master's journey as well. So I've mentioned the cognitive and the emotional, and then again, the physical aspect of mastery is part of the process. So here, those are just some tips that I wanted to share with you today, some thoughts about the journey to mastery, but I want to end with a story. And as I tell you this story, which is a true story about a man named Cliff Young, I want to ask you to consider whether you would say that Cliff Young is a master or was on the master's journey. So here's the story. He was an old guy. He was 61 years old, a farmer, and he ran an ultra marathon. Now, he he didn't fit with the crowd that he was running with. Everybody else in the race was pretty much in their 20s and the oldest ones were in their 30s. Because an ultramarathon is 544 miles long. It takes place annually in Australia. And Cliff was an Australian sheep farmer. And every year, they happened to run by his farm. And he would see all the press and the runners and all the hoopla that was going on. And so one year, he decided that he wanted to run. Now he had never run a race before. He'd never even run a 5K. He'd never run a half marathon. He had never run a race, but he decided that he wanted to be in that ultra marathon. He showed up in his work boots and his overalls. And this is a true story. And the press said, Where who's your backer? Who's your sponsor? And he didn't have a sponsor. And they said, Well, where have you trained? What do you know about running an ultramarathon? Well, sometimes the best training is the everyday things. Okay. And his everyday things were, he, were was the fact that he had 2,000 acres of land and 2,000 sheep, and he didn't have four-wheelers. What would he do when a storm was coming and he need to gather the sheep to a place of safety? He would run. He personally ran and gathered the sheep. That was his training. Well, he didn't have the backers, but he plunked down his money. He didn't have the outfits, the uh, ergonomic shoes, the all the uh, roadside crews that kept the other ones going he just had himself. So you can imagine what happened when the starting gun went off. He ate dust. For 18 hours, the other racers, I mean, they were blowing and going down the road and old Cliff, there he goes back at the back, shuffling along. He just had this kind of shuffling pace. But come nighttime, the other runners that had been trained for the ultra marathon, they were trained to run for 18 hours, they slept for six, and they would get up and do it. It usually took five, six, or seven days. The dark, the darkness came, and you can kind of imagine that Cliff didn't know the routine. He hadn't been trained to run an ultramarathon, so you can imagine what he did through the blackest of night. He just kept on running. He wasn't really running. He had that shuffling pace going on. He ran right through the dark. He didn't know he was supposed to stop. So here he goes, and along the endless stretch of highway, that tiny old man shuffled along one foot in front of the other, through the day, through the night, through the heat. And after several days, Cliff began to gain ground. Well, after five days and 15 hours and four minutes, Cliff finished first. He beat a world record. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. The second place runner crossed the line nine hours after 61-year-old Cliff. And here's the cap. When they handed Cliff Young his $10,000 prize, he said he didn't even know there was a prize. He said he'd run for the wonder of it. And he said since all the other runners had worked hard too, he wanted to give them each an equal share of the $10,000. Now, this happened over a quarter of a century ago. And I'm still talking about Cliff Young today. Because in my book, Cliff Young was on the master's journey. And I hope for you that this year you pull a cliff young, that all that you've been endeavoring to do, that you're going to see measurable progress, that the payoff from from tolerating the plateaus, from still believing in yourself, even when others thought you were nuts, the price that you paid, the gifts that you've learned, that you're going to see some, some of that come to fruition this year. But you know what I hope even more than that? I hope that we get to know each other on this master's journey. Because to me, it's not only the journey I'm on, it's who I'm with in the journey. And I am so thankful you've chosen to join me here on the High Road to Leadership. And I will see you again next episode. I encourage you to get more leadership tips. Go to beverlyspeaks.com and when you click on the blog there's an eagle on the right hand side of the page you can sign up for my leadership tips i have never been accused of sending too much email so don't worry about that but we'll get we'll stay on this journey together we'll grow together because the most important characteristic of those on the lifelong master's journey is the desire for lifelong learning So here we go, here we grow, and the best is yet to come.